All right. Well, church, it's great to see you guys again today. And if this is a first time or first time in a long time, we're wrapping up a series we started back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity still future. Some of you thought this series was going to last to eternity still future. Um, <laughs> it's not, but we are going to always be talking about Jesus a whole lot. So again, that's another thing we're going to have to get used to a little bit. But we're wrapping that up in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to continue with that one more time today. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to, get, where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 40. Uh, the entire thing is going to be about the subject of shame and essentially how Jesus meets us in the middle of shame and begins to bring us out. Now, we've talked about it and referenced it a number of times in the past, and today my hope and prayer is that, is that it's going to become a little bit more real and we're going to get very, very practical with some of the implications of what God has done for us uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, is where we're going to be. Um, real quick, how many of you guys know Brene Brown? Right, we know the shame lady, right? Like, she's not the shame lady. That's probably a bad way of talking about it. Um, shame freedom lady, right? Ten, for the past 10 years, she has become just blown up on the scene, uh, doing incredible work on the subject of shame and how people are delivered out of it, right? Remember back in 2010, uh, she had a TED Talk that was called The Power of Vulnerability to Overcome Shame. Uh, anyone want to guess how many views and downloads that thing has had? 44 million times, I checked it this past week, 44 million downloads on the subject of the power, uh, of the power of vulnerability to overcome shame. You think she struck a nerve there, church? Like, you think this is a thing that kind of a lot of us deal with? In contrast, I think this says something too. Uh, the same year she did another talk, which is kind of the second side of the same coin here. It was called The uh, Price of Invulnerability. Okay, so we got the power of vulnerability to overcome shame, the price or the cost of invulnerability. That one only had a million downloads. So you got 44 million down to 1 million over here. One's all about positivity, the power of vulnerability to overcome shame. One is about the negative consequences if you don't become vulnerable, right? Do you think that that says anything in and of itself about how we process guilt and things that are wrong with us? Right? I, I, I think that's speaking loudly in and of itself. We want the power to overcome. We don't want to deal with, hey, the cost of if we don't. Right? There was another one in 2012. She did another one called uh, Listening to Shame. It got about 12 million downloads. Right? Just two years later, the same thing. Point of the matter, church, is like she's hit the jackpot talking about shame because it's that common of an occurrence. I was thinking back this past week, probably my first experience with shame. I was probably the one, first one that I can remember anyway. I'm sure there's many before that, but... Um, I was about four years old, and with the family, we were out at Walgreens one morning, and uh, I'm walking down the aisle, and I noticed, hey, they've got all this candy laid out for you, and I didn't really understand the concept of, of, of paying for things at that point in time, right? I didn't know what like, money was and like, what you had to do with it, and so I was like, hey, there's this gum right here. I took a piece of gum, and I walked out of the store with it, and I uh, didn't pay for it, obviously. My brother looks at me, my older brother, about eight years older than me, and he looks at me, and he's like, where'd you get that gum? I'm like, oh, it was just laying right there. It's like in the store. Like they had it everywhere. You didn't see it in the store. Like we had like a whole building full of this stuff. And, um, and he's like, Aaron, you can't take that. Like you can't, they're going to arrest you for that. They're going like, to gonna, gonna come and take you. And would you know it, there was a police officer coming through the parking lot that was driving right, our direction, right in our direction that time. And he loved that, right? He looked at that. He's like, Aaron, they're coming for you right now. He's like, they heard about that. They're going to come. What are you going to do? And I, I never forget, like, I turned and ran, and I hid underneath a car in the parking lot right then and there, right? Like, we get it. Like, that's kind of what shame does. Shame is that thing that makes you want to run and hide. Um, uh, Craig Rochelle, he calls it a soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion that everyone experiences to one degree or another. 
He writes about it and he says it's the internalization, the personalization of a perceived deficiency about yourself that, you, that makes you believe, whether you can articulate these beliefs or not, that I am defective, I'm damaged, broken, flawed, dirty, ugly, impure, disgusting, unlovable, weak, pitiful, insignificant, worthless, unwanted. I'm not a real man. I'm not a real woman. I'll never amount to anything. I'll never be good enough. Here's what shame sounds like in the first person. This is taken from an open letter that someone wrote into a blog dealing with the subject matter of shame. And this person wrote in this letter and said, recently I was diagnosed with depression. The shame that I've been feeling about it for the past several months has reached an all-time high because my recent diagnosis was just another statistic to add to my list. As if being Latino, gay, disabled, and poor wasn't already enough, I would add mental health issues to my life's roster of marginalized identities. The shame that I now feel about it is now killing me in a couple different ways. Number one, how am I supposed to think well about myself and believe that I really bring value to this world now that I've added a mental illness to the list? Also, what in the world are people going to think about me now? Is this going to be the final straw? I need so much help, and I don't know really where to begin. Church, like, that's what shame sounds like. And my hunch is that if you're there right now or you've been there any time recently in the past, you probably don't need a whole lot of explanation about what it sounds like because you're all too familiar with what comes along with these feelings of shame, which lead you into isolation and a million other things. So I want to jump into this passage. This passage in Luke chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, I want to talk about specifically how Jesus meets this woman who's in the middle of her shame, how he meets her right there and begins to bring her out of it slowly but surely over time. Luke chapter 8, again, verse 40 is where we're going to pick it up. Um, Luke is all about affirming different women and the different ways that Jesus had interacted with them and brought them out of different places. The chapter even begins with a very similar story. He lists a few different women who are, who are there supporting Jesus, Mary Magdalene, this lady named Susanna and Joanna. These are women who are also healed by Jesus, and they end up going, and for the rest of their days, they're following Jesus, and it says that um, they're actually supporting Jesus' ministry through their work and through their finances, Right? And so that's what they're doing. And so he affirms them there at the beginning of chapter 8. And then later on in verse 40, we don't see that the exact same thing takes place with this woman. Nevertheless, she does experience a very, very similar healing here. Here's what it says, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, who was a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd's almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding, which is a really nice way of saying that she had a disease which made her continually bleed uh, for nearly 12 years. And evidently it could not be healed by anybody, the text says. Church, can you just think about this for a second? I mean, 12 years of constant pain, constant bleeding. 12 years of going to doctor's appointments only to be told, hey, I, we don't know what to do with this. We can't figure this thing out. Like it, we, we, we can't do anything to solve your problem. I mean, 12 years of not being able to worship publicly with friends or family because you're, too, you're considered too unclean to go out in public and to be able to go into the synagogue. 12 years of not being hugged or touched because everybody knows that you're unclean and you're way too disgusting for physical touch, comfort, or love. Church, I mean, you think that she knows a thing or two about shame? I mean, she knows exactly what shame is all about. On top of that, I want you to notice, like, she's not given a name in this text. I mean, Jairus has a name. He's a respected synagogue official. Everybody knows who Jairus is. No one knows who this woman is. She's, she's out of the public eye. 
No one knows her name. She's not interacting with other people. It's likely that she's out there and she's hiding in shame. She's off by herself. She's only going to see doctors, things of that nature. I mean, it's what shame does, right? It, shame is that thing that makes you want to go and hide. A lot of times that's exactly what it does. Sometimes it's going to lead to an over-aggressive pursuit of perfectionism, right, in order to compensate for this feeling, hey, I'm not enough, therefore I'm going to go and I'm going to overly aggressively pursue perfectionism in everything that I say and do. Sometimes it's going to come out in, in being overly critical either of yourself or of other people in order to compensate for the feelings of being less than inside yourself, but typically it's going to be the thing that makes you want to run and hide in shame. Shame is going to be the thing that comes and says things like, okay, I know they're not going to like me. I know they're going to leave me eventually. Uh, I know this whole thing's going to blow up, and I know that I'm never going to be the one that gets the raise over there, so why should I even try? Shame is a thing that makes you always play it safe and rarely take any risks because deep down inside, you don't believe that you deserve anything great. It's exactly what's going on with this woman, and we don't know exactly the whole the, all the, the specific feelings going on inside of her, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt she is experiencing shame like any one of us have ever experienced shame. So one day she hears that Jesus is coming to town. She heard a little bit about who he is. He's the promised Messiah. He's a, he's a healer. He touches people. People are being, being healed immediately. And, and it says in verse 44 that she came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak. I love the word touched right there because the word doesn't just mean passively touch. It means that she grabbed hold of his cloak. It means she clung to it like a rope and was like pulling on it for all of her life. And the reason I love this word here is because some of us need to get this image in your mind because it's exactly what God is calling you to do today. God is calling you to not just passively touch his cloak like you've done Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but to come to the edge of his cloak and to grab onto it with faith and to cling to it with dear life, asking him for healing today. And I love that image. She is clinging to the edge of his cloak. She is grabbing it um, as someone who's got everything on the line. And so Jesus, or it says here immediately after that, it says that immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus said, okay, well, who was it that touched me, right? I, we see Jesus ask these questions a number of times, like, why does, he, why does he do this, right? It's not that he needs to know. It's not that he's that confused about the situation, right? He asks these questions to give people the opportunity to come forward and to be able to make their, their needs known. That's what he's doing right here. It's kind of like when your kid is, uh, uh, you know, he eats the last cookie in the cookie jar or something like that. His face is covered in chocolate. You come to him and you're like, hey, Caleb, uh, did you eat that last cookie? And like, he's got the whole thing all over his face, right? Like, I'm not asking that because I'm really confused about who ate it, um, right? I'm asking that because I'm giving him an opportunity to come clean and to come forward so that we can deal with whatever needs to be done. It's exactly what's taking place here. And so it continues, and it says that when they all denied it, it says that Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing it against you. But Jesus said, no, 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 like someone did touch me, for I know the power had gone out of me. In other words, when this woman touched Jesus, it was a different kind of a touch, it wasn't like you typically touch him on a normal Sunday afternoon. It wasn't like one of these passive experiences. Like, this is a faith grab. This is a faith grab, and it was a faith grab of desperation saying, I need you to come and do for me what I cannot do for myself. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she could not go unnoticed, I want you to notice this. It says that she came trembling, and she fell down at his feet and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And now comes probably the most beautiful part of this entire story, but he but it says that Jesus just looks at her. And as she's sitting there at the, at, at the edge of his feet, he looks at her and he says, daughter, daughter. Not stranger or ma'am or even sister or friend. I mean, he just immediately goes for the most intimate and beautiful language that he could possibly think of. And he just looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith 
has made you well. Now go in peace. I don't know if you've ever wondered how Jesus feels about you in the middle of your sin and shame. And of course, this woman is, she's not in her shame because of something that she's done. She's in her shame because of something that was done to her. And we're going to talk about that a little, little later on. But I don't know if you've ever wondered how Jesus feels about you in the middle of your sin and shame. In the middle of that place when you're kind of going, okay, I know I should probably get up and have my quiet time and, and read the word of God or get on my knees and pray or, or even show up to church on a Sunday morning or show up to life group or my men's group or women's group or something like that, and, and, and you know you should, but there's something in you which says, no, no, I, I, I can't do that. I don't want to be there. Like That is shame that's blocking you off from coming in. And I wonder if you've ever wondered, okay, how does Jesus feel about me in the middle of this pain, in the middle of my sin and wandering? I mean, we're seeing this right here. Jesus just looks at her and, and lifts up her head and says, look at me, daughter. Not only is she physically healed, of the thing that brought her shame, which he still does today, by the way. I don't know if maybe the thing that's bringing you shame today is a physical ailment or something like that. God is a God who still heals to this day. Not only is she physically healed of the thing which is bringing her shame, but, but Jesus spiritually and emotionally heals her in a way that breaks down any recurring shame that she may have again in the future. Church, it's exactly what John's talking about when he says, as many as have received him, to them he's given the right, even to those who have called upon his name, even to those who have just simply believed in his name, to them he's given the right to be called a child of God, to be called a son or a daughter of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So church, like, that's what he's doing. He's looking at her and he's going, because of your faith, because it wasn't like a typical Sunday, because it wasn't just a passive touch or anything like that, because you clung to me for dear life and you came to me in genuine, real, legitimate faith and you, cling, you clung to the edge of my robe because you did those things, not only are you physically healed, but I'm giving you the right to be called a child of God. In other words, he is welcoming her into the family of God. Reminds me of one of the, my favorite stories that I've heard from Francis Chan. He talks about the most beautiful Christian community he's ever seen in his life. In all of his travels, he's a world traveler, famous preacher, Bible teacher, things of that nature. He talks about discovering this community of believers that are over in some abstract place in China. He's out there visiting the mainland, or the, main, the big city, I guess, and he's out there traveling through the country. And he comes across this little unknown community, didn't even have a name. There was only 70 families that lived in this community. And he goes, this is the most beautiful people group I've ever seen. Every single one of these families were believers. Evidently, years prior, there was a, a very successful missionary that came through, uh, shared the gospel with them, and God just moved in power. Every family came to faith. And they started growing. And he's like, this community was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And he said the difficulty this community had over time was as they began to grow in their understanding of the gospel, and they began to grow in everything that God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, God's incredible love for the world and all of humanity and uh, the ways that he wants to use believers to be able to go and to share that message with the rest of the world, they began to get very, very frustrated because they're sitting there going, okay, um, we are all believers right here. Like, we don't even know any unbelievers. There's no one that lives, also, lives around us. We don't live in a big city. We're not around other people. On top of that, we're the poor of the poor. Nobody listens to us or likes us anyway. We're kind of out doing our own thing. And so they get very, very frustrated because they're sitting there going, okay, um, how are we supposed to engage the mission of God? Who are we supposed to tell about Jesus? And so they got frustrated, and they prayed about it oh, for a really long time. Well, one day, one of the elders went to the big city. And when he went to the big city, he heard about this problem that, um, that, that people were it wasn't just that abortion was a problem at the time, that if children were being born with deformities, uh, they were killing their children left and right. Thousands of them were being killed every single year simply because they weren't, um, they weren't easy, I guess. They were born with deformities. 
And this man's hearing about the different things that are going on. He's got a broken heart. He comes back to the village, and of course, he tells the entire village, and they've been praying, Lord, where should we engage? What do you want me to do? And of course, in that moment, uh, they got their answer. These 70 different families adopted over 160 special needs children who would have otherwise been killed. That's what he says is the most beautiful Christian community he ever found. These people understanding the beauty of the gospel, what God had done on their behalf, figuring out, saying, God, where in the world can you use me? And saying, you know what? This is who I want to serve. I love how one of the men described what was going on. He wrote and he said this. He said, as we grew in our understanding of the gospel, we began to see ourselves in the faces of these children. When nobody else saw us, loved us, or even thought twice about us, Jesus did. He looked at us, even in our sin, and he still said, I choose you. Church, it's exactly what's happening here in this text. I mean, she's terrified of what Jesus is going to say. He's a holy one. He's, a, he, he, he's, he's the promised Messiah. And he, just, and he just looks at her and just looks at her in the eyes and just says, daughter, daughter, get up, go in peace. And I hope you hear me this morning, church. It's exactly what he does for any of us who are living in shame today. He goes to you in the middle of your shame. He goes to you in the middle of your shame, no matter the kind, whether it's the kind that says, hey, I was victimized and somehow in the middle of this victimization, I'm believing these things that make me feel shame somehow, or if it's a shame that we brought upon ourselves, that's exactly what he does all the time. He goes to you in the middle of your shame. He meets you in the middle of your shame. He calls you beloved. He shows you his grace, everything that he's done on your behalf in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here it is. Then he says to me, if you will simply cling to me in faith, if you will grab the robe of my garment, if you will cling to me for dear life and hold on through genuine faith, then I will see to it that you are washed completely clean. I will make sure that you are justified and declared, declared righteous before a holy God. I will say that you are sanctified and you're now called holy before a holy God. I will give you the indwelling Holy Spirit to go and to live with you for the rest of your days who will then go and produce in you our life, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I will take care of these different kinds of things and then I'll also adopt you and bring you into my family and give you the right to be called a child of God, a son or daughter of the king of all kings. Church, that's what he does on our behalf. Some of us are sitting here looking at this story and you may be wondering, okay, how in the world is this possible? Is this just arbitrary kind of holding on to things that we hope are true? Like how in the world can someone who is unclean, full of sickness and full of sin, all of a sudden have these different things disappear? Muslims ask this question all the time because they understand unclean people cannot touch clean people. Like this story is taking, like this story that's taking place right here. Where did the sickness go? They always ask. We get this, right? If your if your kid gets really really sick, you don't sit there and go, "Oh, great! I'm going to send him to school so he can be around healthy people. Healthy people's health will rub off on them and make them make them well." You shouldn't do that, by the way. Like, hopefully that's not happening back there. Don't ever bring them around. Like, it's, it happens the other way around. Sick people make healthy people sick. It doesn't go the other way around, except here with Jesus. And we're always asking the question, okay, well, what happened to the sickness then? Isaiah is going to explain it like this, and I want you to see what he says. He says, surely he, speaking of the promised Messiah, speaking of Jesus, surely he took our pain, and he's the one who bore our suffering. Yet we thought that he was being punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, it fell upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
In other words, church, like these things, this sickness, this sin, and this disease, it didn't just disappear into thin air. When Jesus went to the cross, there was an inequitable exchange that took place where he took our sin, he took our sadness, he took our sorrows, our shame, and our condemnation, and in exchange, he gave us his peace, he gave us his righteousness, he gave us a brand new identity that is totally, completely found in him. I don't know if any of you guys ever saw the movie Green Mile from the mid-90s. You guys see that movie? Um, yeah, not a Christian movie, but it's a great movie nonetheless, right? It's a lot of fun, and I think it perfectly illustrates what took place upon the cross in a lot of different ways. If you remember this movie, um, John Coffey was the main character. He's the enormous dude that's in prison. Uh, he has the gift of healing, and, uh, and so this movie does a good job of illustrating what takes place through the power of healing. And so he would go to the different people, and they'd bring him to these specific circumstances. I think I got a picture here. But he would go and he would touch them. And don't get freaked out by that picture and stuff here. I tried to cut out as much of it as I could to try to make it, give you an image of what's going on here. But he would go and he would go over somebody who's dying, and he would speak to them. And in the middle of this thing, he would touch them, and their sickness would come out of their mouth, and it would come into his so their sickness is transitioned over to him. He takes their sickness and they get his life. Church, it's exactly what's taking place upon the cross. It is an inequitable exchange. We are passing over our sin, our sickness, our shame, our condemnation. He is granting us righteousness, holiness, and the right to be called a child of God. It is the inequitable exchange that takes place there upon the cross. And it's exactly what God is doing for this, for this woman right here through Jesus Christ. Not only is she physically healed in this moment, but she is spiritually and emotionally healed in such a way that breaks down any recurring shame that she may have again in the future. I want to get really, really practical with this, and I want to, get, I want to talk to this because I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying and I'm believing that God will set some people free today. Um, there's a few things that have to happen for shame in order to be broken. I think we're going to see them here in the text. Uh, number one, you've got to be able to identify your shame. In other words, it can't continue to exist in, um, in mystery. It can't continue to exist without it being named. It can't continue to exist without ever, uh, without ever soul searching and doing the hard work and figuring out what's going on inside of me. It must be identified. I, I think for the woman in the story, it's pretty easy what the, the object of her shame is. She's bleeding for 12 years. It's caused her to be unclean and all these different kinds of things. That's a little bit easier to detect. And for a lot of us, it's not so easy to figure out what it is that's going on inside, which is bringing me so much shame. I was talking with a guy a few years back who's a buddy of mine, and he was telling me a story about how it took him about 25 years to figure out that the thing which happened to him when he was a kid, it actually made him believe that something was, he, he, said this, he said the words, he goes, I feel like something was taken from me and robbed from me. Church, I've heard that same quote three times this week from people around our church body. What happened to me when I was a kid it stole a piece of who I was. Brene Brown says, like, this is not an easy thing to detect. It took him 25 years. It took him counselors. It took, it, it took him all this, this community and, and doing the hard work of going back and dealing with some of these things. But Brene says that it, this isn't a very difficult or this isn't a very easy thing to detect. But generally speaking, shame can be identified in the places which make you feel like you're not enough, even though Jesus Christ has made it abundantly clear you're more than enough. I mean, that's where you can identify the places of your shame. I was reading a, a blog post this past week. A bunch of different people were writing in different things that had made them feel not enough in a lot of their own shame experiences. One lady wrote in and said, I've always felt the shame that I was never extraordinary enough. Anyone ever feel that living in Dallas? Where, my gosh, always keeping up with the Joneses, always one-upping. You're never, ever, ever enough. You've always got to do more. Even as a kid, she writes, she said, I hated the icebreaker where you introduce yourself by sharing one unique thing about you 
because I always thought that I was very ordinary. Then as I went away to college, BYU, people always talked about how I'd finally become someone when I got married and started having kids. But there was always this feeling that to become something meaningful, I had to do something incredible. Church, people were writing into this thing over and over again. The comment sections were filled. A lot of the ladies were writing in and saying very, very similar things. They were saying things like, I never feel spiritual enough. I never feel authentic enough, easygoing enough. A lot of people were like, hey, I'm kind of that, that type A. I, I take control of everything. I'm not easygoing enough. I'm not organized enough. I'm not decisive enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not quiet enough. Two competing things right there, right? I'm not strong enough. I'm not quiet enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm not compassionate, generous, or selfless enough. The men, they were writing in the same things because this is a universal problem. It's not just for one gender over another. The men were writing very similar things, but they said things like, I never feel strong enough. I don't feel like I'm a good enough provider, like I failed my family because I didn't provide according to expectations. I don't feel smart enough. I'm not good at my job enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not godly enough. I'm not a good enough father, and I'm not a good enough husband. Teens were writing in too, and one guy said this, I'm not interesting enough for my parents to pay attention to me and listen. Another girl said, I'm not valuable enough for the family to stay together. One kid wrote in, I don't feel seen enough, which is exactly why I cut. Others were writing in saying very similar things. I don't feel funny enough, cool enough, smart enough, athletic enough for people to like me at school, church, whatever it may be. We've got to be willing to do the hard work and say, God, bring these things to the surface and help me identify and understand what is that thing that's making me not feel enough when your word has assured me that I'm already more than enough. The second thing we've got to do is we've got to be a people that are able to lift our eyes um, and, and fact check our shame. That's what I'm calling it, fact check your shame. Uh, you know this, we're living in an age, it doesn't matter if you're CNN or Fox News, right? You feel like whatever outlet you're watching and stuff, you need to fact check whatever's going on and figure out if this is actually true or if I'm just hearing things in my head. And that's what we're talking about. We've got to be a people to know how to lift our eyes up and to be able to see the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and be able to fact check our shame in that moment. Um, the psalmist does this all the time. I love this. In Psalm chapter 3, he says that the Lord is the one who's the lifter of my head. And I love that language right there that he uses. He says, the Lord is the one who's the lifter of my head. And there's this image of, hey, in those times when the only thing that I can see is what's inside of me, in the times when I'm just looking at the things that I've done, I'm looking go at what's, what's going on inside of my soul, or I'm only looking at the people that are around me here, and I can only look down. It's the Lord who's the one who comes and lifts my eyes and allows me to see him and everything that's true about me now because I'm found in him. I love what he's doing. It's exactly what he does here with the woman. As she's looking at the ground in shame, it says that he's, she is literally coming to Jesus at his feet. She's so terrified about what Jesus is going to say about her, about how, about how the whole thing is going to go down. She crawls to Jesus' feet. She's terrified of what's going to happen. And it just says that Jesus looks at her and just calls her daughter. Daughter, daughter, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing for you to continue in your shame about. Daughter, daughter, daughter. Like I can imagine that in that moment, she just, like all of a sudden her head lifts up and, just, and she's looking at it and she's kind of going, okay, Jesus, are, are you talking about me? Like you can imagine in that moment of, of just absolute terror, how is Jesus gonna react to me? I touched him, this holy man, and I'm in shame. I'm unclean. This isn't what people do. How's he gonna respond? And he just says, daughter. And she just looks up and she's going, what? You're talking, me? You're, you're talking about me? Church, he's the lifter of our head. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying right here. Like Jesus, it's, it's what he does, by the way. 
Like it's how the Holy Spirit, Spirit speaks to us. He, he meets us in the middle of our shame and he talks to us exactly as we are now that we are in Jesus Christ. He begins with our identity and then he calls us to follow him. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 16, he's going to say, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's talking about when Jesus has ascended, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to be the one who convicts the world of sin, convicts the world of righteousness, and then also convicts the world of judgment. In other words, church, like, like, like shame is not of the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit that is making you feel shame. Guilt, absolutely, but there's an enormous difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the thing that says, I've done something bad. We've talked about this before again, Brene Brown. I've done something bad. Shame is the thing that says, I am something bad. Right? It's, it's, guilt, shame does not come from the Holy Spirit. Guilt is good and healthy to understand. The Holy Spirit leads us to guilt, leads us to conviction of sin. Guilt is the thing which separates us from the sociopaths. Sociopaths don't feel guilt. They never feel like they're wrong. They never feel like, hey, there's anything for me to turn from or learn from because I'm that awesome and I never do anything wrong or I'm numb inside. Like guilt is a good and healthy emotion. Guilt is a thing which leads us to repentance so that I can actually change and I can grow. I can stop hurting the people that I've hurt in my past and I can continue to walk in victory with the Lord Jesus Christ. Guilt is a very healthy thing to, to feel. But the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you into shame, crushing shame, because at the exact same time that he leads you to, convicts you of the sin of your past, he also convicts you of what's true about your righteousness. And he reminds you that if you are now in Jesus Christ, then you have already been declared righteous and justified before a holy God. That's your judgment. That's what he's reminding you of in the middle of that time. Church, it's the Holy Spirit that reminds you that you've been created in the image of God, and every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity and value and purpose. He's the one who reminds you that you've been, that you're now holy and you're called a saint and you're a co-heir with Christ and you're a son or daughter of the king, you're a child of God, you're a masterpiece. Church, like that's the thing that he reminds you of. He reminds you of this inequitable exchange that took place upon the cross whereby we handed him our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And he handed us his righteousness and right standing before a holy God whereby you and I have the opportunity to go before him and call ourselves holy sons and daughters of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That's why Paul is going to say things like, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ has completely set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, like that's how the Holy Spirit speaks. He reminds you of who you are now, that you are in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget, church, it is the enemy who does the opposite. It is the enemy who always goes and will attack who you actually are and try to, try to cripple you from the inside. You remember in Matthew chapter 3, this is Jesus' baptism. We talked about this a little while ago, but you remember this scene. Jesus is going and he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And he's sitting there in the water and you see this beautiful scene where the triune God is there at one time. The father speaks to the son and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately there's affirmation of who Jesus is. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You remember what happens immediately after this scene? It's the temptation of Jesus as he goes into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the enemy, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, immediately he says that he's taken from the baptism scene to the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. You remember exactly how the enemy does it? Two different times he comes to Jesus and he says the exact same thing. Hey, Jesus, um, if you're really the son of God, then speak to these rocks and turn them into bread. Hey, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, it's exactly what he's doing. He's attacking his identity. If you really are who you say that you are, then why don't you turn these rocks into bread? Why don't you do something about it? And, of course, Jesus knows exactly how to fact-check him. And, of course, he quotes Scripture back, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on the very words that proceed from the mouth of the Lord. And the enemy circles back around one more time. You did, you did it once right, but the enemy circles back around one more time. And he says, Hey, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, if that's really who you are, 
If, if, you, if you really are who people say that you are, then throw yourself off this peak, peak and have the angels save you. And of course, Jesus does the exact same thing. Church, every single time, he will begin with your identity and who you are. He will make you question where God has put a period. And he will sit, he will sit there and say, hey, if you're really a beloved of God, then why in the world did this take place? If you're really a son or a daughter of the king, then Billy, why'd you lie? Why'd you cheat? Why'd you ruin your family? Why did you say those things in the past? Why were you so violent? Why were you so hurtful in the things that you've said? If that's really who you are, then why in the world are you doing these different things? It's exactly how the enemy's gonna work. He's gonna say, hey, your, your identity and who you are now is attached to the things that you've done in the past, your present, or what you will do in the future. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've taken care of shame so that you can experience guilt in a very healthy way, a guilt that's gonna lead you to repentance, a guilt that's gonna say, uh, a, a guilt that's gonna be, be able to allow you to learn from your past because he's handled the, the condemnation of your shame, which says, no, 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 I am something bad. You are a son or a daughter of the king of all kings. You are fully beloved. You are, you are what Christ has said that you are. Church, we have got to be able to lift our eyes and be able to fact check our shame. We've got to be able to know in the moment, be able to discern, hey, this is of the enemy and this is actually of the Holy Spirit. Guilt, good. We can turn from it and we can run from it. We can learn from it. We can become better spouses. We can become better parents. We can become better friends. We can be more faithful in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Guilt, good, shame, crushing shame has no place in the kingdom of God because he has fully and completely taken care of it on our behalf. Last thing that we've got to do is we've got to be able to speak your shame. In other words, we've got to be a people that are able to bring it out of the shadows and not let it fester in silence and in mystery any longer. Shame is one of those things that just grows and grows and grows and compounds in secrecy. You know that? It's kind of like a mold. Um, it just grows in darkness. It grows in isolation. It gets worse and worse and worse. It builds up accusation. It warps the way that we treat the people that we love. And it just builds and builds and builds. It's kind of like that old moldy lunchbox you found. Like, I don't rem you remember the toddler years? They come back from preschool after a week, and you're like, where'd this lunchbox come from? And then you open it up, and it's like, boom. Like, there's a bomb that went off in your house of stink. Um, yeah, it's, it's like this sandwich and apple and everything that began on Monday really, really well. It just festered in silence and darkness and isolation. And all of a sudden, it just grows and grows and grows. That's exactly how shame works. Like, shame thrives in darkness and in secrecy. I love how Brene Brown says it. She says that shame cannot survive when it's spoken out loud and it's met with empathy. Shame cannot survive when it is spoken out loud and it's met with empathy. Church, that's exactly why he asked the question. He says, who's the one who touched me? I mean, it's, it's why he's, he's calling around and he says, who's the one who touched my robe? He's not asking because he couldn't figure it out. He's asking so she's going to have the opportunity to come in and tell her testimony and to be able to bring things to the surface and deal with them openly and honestly. It's exactly what takes place, too. Verse 47, it says that she came to him trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all people. In other words, the crowds are all around her. In the presence of all people, it says that she told everyone why she had touched him and how she'd been healed. In other words, like in the presence of all these people, she's opening up and saying, I've been bleeding for 12 years. I've been unclean. You guys know that. I haven't been able to come out in public. I've been trying to get relief from this for 12 years. Like, you know this. She's telling her story in front of all these different people and wondering if she's going to be met with empathy and it's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus looks at her and he turns up her head and he says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Church, she's talking about all these different kinds of things and it's only when she brings things to the surface and she begins to talk that true, total, and complete healing is taking place. 
Again, I was reading a story from a, a lady named Diane Gates. She's one of these ladies who wrote in and told her story about shame. And uh, hers is a story of being a victim when she was a kid. Um, she was a little girl, and again, much like this woman in the story right here, the thing which is bringing her shame is not a thing which she brought upon herself. We know this, right? Sometimes our shame is some kind of a sin, some sort of a dysfunction inside of us. We brought upon ourselves. We were, um, we were hurtful. We were mean. We were living in sin. We were, we've got this addiction. We've got this, that, and the other. And then sometimes it's things that have happened to us. And Satan has this weird way of warping what's taking place and confusing what's really going on up here to where you actually believe that you are responsible for the things that took place against you when you couldn't do anything about it. This woman's telling her story, and that's kind of where she is. And um, she talked about, again, for the first 30 years of her life, um, she didn't know that that shame was there. It took place very early on. She was blocked from it. Um, God had protected her from the, the, the images and things that come along. And, and so uh, for the next 25 years, the uncle was not allowed into the home. And um, until this day when she had her first child, and this uncle wanted to come and meet his great-grandchild. Mom comes to the scene and says, hey, I want you to come meet your uncle. He really wants to meet the great-grandchild or great-nephew, whatever it is. And she writes about that day, and she says this. She says, I saw him as I walked in the door and was repulsed. My face flamed rage, and I couldn't even find my voice. Get out of here, I shouted inside my head. I ran out the door, confused and perplexed. My entire body was flooded with anger and shame. The next day, I questioned my mom, of course, and she denied knowing anything and implied that, it was, that I was all lying about it. And so my anger and shame remained. Parents, can we just listen to the kids, please? I talked with the Lord, she says, but my shame only grew as I kept my secrets to myself. And I allowed Satan to build a stronghold in my life that allowed him to yank my strings of anger hopelessness and unforgiveness about something over which I thought that I had no control of. She says, it was several years before I found the confidence to share my story with a group of women whose lives were also marked by past assault. Together, we wept over the pain, but together we also reminded each other that we are not defined by a single event from our past. Rather, we're defined by the love of Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf and what he says is true about us now in our identity. I know now that God can redeem any event that has happened in our past and use it to help other people, but Satan wanted to keep me quiet. So I believed his lies, which said, no one will understand if you talk about it. Everyone will blame you for it. Everyone will hate you, and they'll talk about you behind your back. He did everything that he could to keep me from talking about my shame. I love this last part, but he lost. He lost. He lost. Church, shame cannot survive when it's spoken out loud and it's met with empathy. My hope and my prayer at Dallas Bible Church for many years right now is that this would be a place that's full of compassion, that's full of empathy. The shame would be broken. That the cycles of, of anger and abuse and everything that comes as a fallout from that, that would be completely and totally broken. Four years ago, I sat up here and I, I preached this similar message and I was talking about vulnerability and coming out, and there's a man who talked with me after the service, and he said, that all sounds fantastic, but it's never going to be a reality here until our life groups and until our place, people groups around here, are actually safe places for people to come and to talk about the things that are real. And he went on and he shared with me his own story about trying to do that in a life group setting, only to be shut down and only to be shamed further and things of that nature. 
And church, he's absolutely right. The condemnation of shame, the brokenness of shame, the, perpetuate, the perpetual things that we do as a result of our shame, like those things will never be broken if this is not a place of empathy and compassion, a safe place for come, people to come and to bring their things to the surface and be met with truth and be met with grace, that people could be completely and totally set free. We're serious about that this here at the church. I want to let you know about a few things that have taken place the past year. Uh, we decided that we're going to take an enormous part of our budget and set it aside every single year for people in our church body that need to go to counseling, uh, that don't have a safe community around here to be able to talk to. We do hope and pray, first and foremost, it's taking place on a life group level, that you've got real, honest friendships that you can come and you can bring things to the surface and you can, and you can be met with compassion and truth at the exact same time. Uh, we hope and pray that it's going to take place in different groups, women's groups, men's groups, re-engage and things of that nature. Uh, Freedom Prayers, a ministry we brought in about a year and a half ago now probably, and uh, we've got an incredible team of people that are meeting with people all the time throughout the week, and Freedom Prayer is exactly that. You're coming and you're meeting with the team of people that are coming, and we're going back to the beginning and trying to unearth some of the things that are there, which are leading to maybe addiction, uh, leading to pain, leading to different things, and they're praying with you, uh, discerning from the Holy Spirit what needs to be said and done in order that you may be set free from those things. If that's you, I would highly, 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 highly encourage you to get signed up for Freedom Prayer today. You can do so on our website. There's a link on there. You can sign up there, and we would love to meet you and pray for you. For the rest, we are putting our money where our mouth is. And if you need counseling and you need to go to some trusted people that these things can be brought out and you can deal with this over a long time, then we are paying for those things so that you can go and, and get the help that you need. Uh, we've got a number of families and people that are already doing it. Staff, we're engaging in it too. We're not above this. It's not a thing that only hurt people and broken people need. You need to be able to go and you need to be able to talk and you need to be able to be honest about different things that God, through his Holy Spirit, would meet you there and bring you to total and complete freedom. And if that is you, uh, I hope that you know that um, we're a church that hopes and prays this is a safe place. It's full of compassion, full of empathy, full of truth, and we want to walk alongside you and see that you're totally and completely set free. Church, don't miss. Jesus goes to a woman who's on her face, mourning at his feet, thinking that all is lost, and he lifts up her head, and he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. And he calls her son. And he speaks truth about who you are now so that you can hold on to it and be totally and completely set free. I'm going to invite you to bow as we pray together.